Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to work our way around the body head to toe, exploring different body parts and organs and their history in a cultural, medical, social sense. We're going to hear from a historian or curator about their work studying these body parts and their history. And we'll finish up each episode by exploring some of the recipes that were developed in history to treat that part of the body. So welcome to Head to Toe. We are working our way around the body and today we are looking at skin. My name is Daisy Cunningham. I am the college's heritage manager and librarian. Um, And I'm Olivia Howarth and I am a volunteer with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Heritage. So we're looking at skin in a in a contemporary way, in a historical way, in a cultural way, every different way that we can think about looking at skin. So Olivia, if we talk about the history of skin, is there anything in particular that springs to mind as sort of important ideas, moments, diseases, anything that you can think of? Well, um, I suppose the idea that um, the skin is like a visual indicator of other things happening potentially. So like when you get rashes or boils, it might be an indication of disease, like particularly plague. <laughs> I'm thinking of anything with oozy green disgustingness. Um, no, and actually talking about the the sort of the, the the breaking of the skin and wounds and things like that, I saw a thing just recently about how they've apparently come up with this fantastic new innovative sort of treatment for wounds, which is they're almost like zip ties. You kind of attach a series of these things to your skin and then you pull them closed. So rather than stitching the skin, they're kind of closing it by i'm describing this very badly but it was like individual sutures yeah yeah but they just sort of stick on top so there's no cutting or breaking or stitching the skin but it was presented in this article as being this incredibly innovative exciting new thing but it's actually almost identical to what i was looking at peter lowe who was a scottish surgeon doing in like the 1500s so but he did almost exactly the same thing where you stuck a piece of cloth on either side of the wound stitched down the cloth itself and then pulled the cloth shut so that again you wouldn't actually need to stitch the skin you pulled the two sides closed so they would heal together without actually cutting into the skin and it's like oh this is incredibly innovative new idea that they've come up with that was actually being used in 1500 and something um so yeah everything comes (laughs) around i guess is there a benefit to not piercing the skin again? I guess you're not reinfecting. In a modern sense, I don't know. I'm not going to claim to know, you know, about yeah. 21st century medicine. But in a historical sense, there was there was less chance of infection, yes. But actually, one of the big reasons they recommended it was for aesthetic reasons, that you, it would scar much less obviously. And the example that I saw of Peter Lowe having done it was for it was an illustration of a woman's face and so they were doing it on her cheek ah. and so the idea was a much finer scar um because this the sides were laid together rather than sort of puckered up and forced together um so yeah it was it was aesthetic as much as anything i think but i suppose that's kind of what's what's interesting about a lot of the history of skin is is that it's a combination of 
as if you were looking at certain sort of body parts like the liver or the lungs then a lot of what you're going to find is probably going to be sort of scientific or trying to medically treat things whereas with skin there's a whole bunch of as you as you were saying there's a whole bunch to do with plague and leprosy and things like that but a lot of it is about aesthetics and looks and so these two things sort of knock up against each other you know and you're like well what are they trying to do here is it trying to look nice or are they trying to be healthy and i suppose as well things like beauty marks covering pox scars that's another aesthetic thing is also in that vein of maintaining the skin's appearance. Yes. And then it crossing over into fashion. I mean, you're absolutely right that that's one of the strange ones, which, you know, you, you, you put, um, it was, it started off, I I think in, in France in the 1700s and yes, you would put a sort of a, a mark over your, it could be your syphilis scar or your smallpox, you, you know, scar, whatever kind of scarring you had. Um, you would put these sort of often velvet moles over them and it started becoming increasingly fashionable to have ones that were in particular shapes. So you might have one in the shape of a moon or, or a star or something. And it became very fashionable. And so people would wear these even when they didn't have anything to cover. And it sort of continued in the same way that, you know, wearing lead as a cosmetic became so fashionable that you you wanted to have a sort of death white look to you. It started out as something to cover up a skin complaint. And then it was taken to such an extreme that it was very, very clear this was not healthy or natural in any way. A lot of very dubious sort of um, aesthetic treatments, many of which actually ended up causing the very sort of thing they were there to cover up. You know, you put a lot of arsenic on your skin to make your skin look whiter and clearer, and you were going to end up with some very pockmarked, unhealthy looking skin at the end of it. Interesting. (laughs) Medicine in general can be quite fashionable in the sense of the sort of cycles it goes through. So you have the period when it's, you know, lead is the preferred choice. Then they move on to arsenic as that becomes sort of more widely available. Then they move on to radium as that becomes available. It goes through these cycles, but it's it, it doesn't ever seem to be anything good. <laughs> there was something called arsenic complexion wafers, which you were supposed to uh, ingest in order to improve your skin. Um, it's just, I suppose it's sort of human nature. Arguably, not that it, not that this necessarily applies to the skin, but in terms of medicine, arguably, I guess we're in our antibiotics phase at the moment in terms of medicine. It feels like every period of history, there's sort of almost a cure-all, not, not an actual cure-all, but something that is decided to work for everything. So arsenic was used for just about everything for a period um, electricity was the same when when they discovered, you know, or, or were able to develop electricity as a sort of handy tool you could use from home. They suddenly believed it would cure everything, including bad skin, but also, you know, rheumatism and ulcers and everything you could think of. So it seems to be very human nature to sort of want one thing that can be used for an absolute myriad of, of stuff. And for a while, arsenic was the go to for everything. Do you reckon, is it? Partially, like, demand and supply as well. So when something becomes really popular, you have a lot of it in supply or potentially have a lot of it in supply. And so that's the thing that cures everything because that's what you have. 
Um, I think so. I think supply and demand makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, electricity is a good example of something where once you've got the kit, you know, you've got it, you don't need to keep buying it. So a lot of it is about accessibility, absolutely, and, and cheapness. But I suppose one of the things that I, and this is what I'm about to say is a massive oversimplification. But one of the things I really like about the history of medicine is that it's so entwined with people to a much greater extent than the other sciences. So obviously you can't remove people from the from any sort of equation to do with physics or or botany or or you know chemistry. But doctors really could only do what they could get away with. So doctors weren't necessarily calling the shots. It was about what people wanted. Um because especially pre-NHS, you're you're usually talking about paying customers here. You're talking about people who are paying for a service and therefore they are getting the treatment that they want. So when something like electricity becomes incredibly fashionable in a social sense, so you have these sort of middle class, you know, sort of bourgeois people who would go to displays of electricity. That would be a fun activity for the family is you would go and watch someone on a stage demonstrating electricity, you know, like it's a theatre performance. It was hugely popular in that sort of sense. It was fascinating. It was exciting. And therefore, it's what people wanted. So it, it can be a little bit difficult when you're sort of looking at, I don't know, pre-1850 or something to figure out if this is always what the doctor wanted to be prescribing or if they were reacting to people going, oh, I've heard of this new thing. It's sort of a complicated dynamic when when you're reliant on the patient who has potentially quite a lot of money. Uh, to pay your bills you can't dictate to them they are it's it's a dialogue and they want electricity similarly with arsenic of course you know what's happening in medicine isn't happening in isolation so arsenic is everywhere you know it, it is in wallpaper it's in clothes they're putting it as a food coloring in children's sweets it's in toys you know because it, it had the ability to create this very remarkable emerald green color it was used in so many things in people's lives in that kind of particular period. So it was, you know, this medicine was just one of many. I suppose because it was green, there is that sort of, it's green, it must be natural, it must be healthy, it must be doing good things to me. There was, of course, this sort of Victorian huge fascination for gardens, for the outdoors. You know, it's kind of, there was a thing called fern fever, which I'm very enthusiastic about because ferns became incredibly popular every home was filled with ferns and we have these lovely pictures of our college college of physicians of edinburgh where all of the rooms like every table is just covered in dozens of ferns they're everywhere and it was just this sort of fascination with nature nature in a sort of controlled way you know very organized way where you know it's a lovely landscape garden or a lovely walk or a botanics or something um, but yes, I don't know if the interest in the green of arsenic ties in with that, but it's kind of an interesting idea. I'm impressed that we've got here from where we started. <laughs> it's it's quite a it's quite a, a a stretch. In our case study today, we're going to look at a book from our collection, a practical treatise on diseases of the skin by John Shoemaker published in 1888. And we're going to look particularly at one photograph it contains, an image of 28-year-old Frederick Jordan from North Carolina. 
Frederick was admitted to the Philadelphia Hospital in 1870 to receive treatment for severe keloid scarring. Formerly enslaved, he had faced relentless physical violence. A small abscess from childhood had formed an enlarged, raised scar. His master now carefully avoided punishment, his surgeon noted. However, whipping by a band of soldiers and an accident with an axe caused the keloid to grow further and encircle his neck. Surgeons removed it twice, but it rapidly returned. Patients like Frederick were treated by physicians who believed in innate differences between black and white skin. Arguments that black skin was thicker and less sensitive to pain were used to justify mistreatment of those enslaved and persisted long after slavery was abolished. Shoemaker was not the only author to document cases such as Frederick's. There had been an intense debate in Enlightenment-era Europe about the origins of black skin. Theories included a biblical curse, the heat of the tropics, and a humoral imbalance. More fanciful conjectures blamed darkened semen, leprosy, and the imagination of pregnant women. In associating black skin with punishment, disease, and degradation, they sought to justify the enslavement of human beings. European anatomists tried to locate the source of blackness. Black skin became an important site for the invention of scientific ideas about race, which have had a long and painful legacy in the modern world. Another author studying this subject was James Thompson, an Edinburgh-educated doctor and plantation owner in Jamaica. In the early 1800s, he conducted an experiment on yaws, a bacterial infection affecting the skin, bones and joints, which was a common cause of death and debility among enslaved people. Drawing on indigenous practices, he inoculated enslaved children with the discharge from yaws ulcers and monitored their reaction. The disease which ensued was neither shorter nor milder. One child was unwell for nine months and was left with disfiguring scars. Thompson's work was controversial. He also documented his dissections of deceased black people to determine the source of skin colour. Though praised for valuing indigenous knowledge, he was one of several doctors in the West Indies who subjected enslaved people to painful and invasive experiments under the guise of medical learning. Racist writings extended to the idea that some inherent weakness caused disease, including leprosy. During the 1860s, leprosy became a growing concern across the British Empire, raising fears that it might return to Europe. The Colonial Office tasked the Royal College of Physicians of London with gathering information about leprosy from British colonies in the West Indies, India, China and the South Pacific. The report published in 1867 encouraged the idea that leprosy was a hereditary disease distinctive to tropical colonial spaces and associated with what they perceived as the physical and moral weakness of non-European people. In this short excerpt, Dr. Mary Fissel talks about an image in a book titled Aristotle's Masterpiece. This book is neither a masterpiece nor by Aristotle. It is a sex and pregnancy manual which mixes plagiarised sections of midwifery books with Roman texts and popular folklore. It was first published in 1684 and went through hundreds of editions, remaining in print up to the 1930s. The woodcut Mary is discussing shows a naked woman covered in hair standing next to a black child who was born to white parents. I want to argue there's a distinctive theme to the information and reproduction contained in the book, and that is the problem of resemblance. The core of the book is about why children both do and do not resemble their parents. This issue is highlighted right at the front of the book. Here's the frontispiece to the very first edition. 
So who are these people? Um, these two are not what they might appear to be. They are not mother and child. They are not the child of black parents. These two are examples of the theory of maternal imagination, very widespread in the Renaissance. So the theory of maternal imagination has it that when a woman is pregnant, something that she sees or imagines can be impressed upon the extremely plastic form of the fetus she's carrying. So women were told, for example, not to go to executions because horrible sights like that might deform the baby that they were carrying. Very, very common widespread belief. So these two, the black baby story is told all over the Renaissance, all over Europe. Um, that baby was born to two white parents. The white parents were having sex. The moment of conception, the wife's eyes stray to a painting of a black man on the wall of the marital bedroom. And that image at that moment is, goes right through her eyes, as it were, through her brain and right to the womb and impresses the form of the baby as black. It's interesting because the story is also told the other way of two black parents and a white baby. And there's a wonderful version of the story where a princess has a baby of the wrong color and is accused of adultery and is going to get, accused, get executed when Hippocrates himself comes to her rescue and explains there's actually a natural explanation for why she has a baby of the wrong color. So this is a story that circulates very widely in the Renaissance. The hairy woman is the result, was born to a woman who prayed to a little picture, a little icon of St. James the Baptist while she was pregnant. This was James the Baptist in his desert father years. He was, the picture supposedly had him clad in a camel skin out in the desert. And her frail and perfect female mind transformed a saint in fur into a furry person. So this hairy baby was born to this woman who was praying to this little image of a saint. I need hardly add that in England, this is like an added frisson of horribleness because she shouldn't have been praying to images of saints anyway, right? So I think it reads even worse in a Protestant country. Um, she shouldn't have been doing that. So the two of them each have their own stories about the maternal imagination and then a woodblock engraver in the late 16th century puts them in the same frame. They're not really connected, right? Their stories are different, but he engraves them in the same picture in a discussion of monstrosity and then they stay together for hundreds of years. This actual image is recut from a picture in the collected works of Amboise Paret, the English translation in 1626. It's almost a direct copy. Now, I think that the implications of the theory of maternal imagination were somewhat threatening to patriarchal society. First of all, it suggests that women's weak and idle imaginations could threaten their children. And second, more deeply, that women had the power to disrupt the paternal line, to interfere with the transfer of qualities from father to son. Worse even than that, the masterpiece actually advises women how to get away with adultery. They advise specifically that if you're having an affair, you're sleeping with your lover, you need to imagine your husband while you're having sex with the lover so that should you get pregnant, the baby will look like your husband, whom it's supposed to look like, not the lover. Now you would think this kind of takes the sparkle out of an adulterous relationship, but that is what the text advise. So this image of the power of the maternal imagination becomes like a trademark for this particular book for at least 150 years. Um, we see her over and over again.
welcome to Recipes of Yore. We're going to explore some unusual medical recipes from the past. The way in which the word recipes was used in the past is a bit different from how it's used today. So it could mean recipes for cooking, for medicine, or even recipes for cleaning products or cosmetics. Very few of them were treatments we would recognise in the 21st century, and certainly none of these should be tried at home. Recipe books were filled with treatments for the skin. Some were for dangerous conditions, others were to improve the appearance, including many cosmetics. One book, dating from the early 1700s, included a recipe for soap. Quote, Spermaceti, one ounce. Campfire, finely pounded, quarter of an ounce. Put these into a pot in a saucepan of water. Keep it upon the fire, boiling gently for an hour, and then taking it off, stir it till cold. In the 1600s, soap began to be heavily taxed in England, and consequently store-bought soap was only available to the wealthiest members of society. Soap-making equipment was closely supervised by revenue officials, who kept the keys to the soap pans when they were not in use, to prevent illegal manufacture after hours. Recipes for homemade soaps abounded, however. It was not until 1853 that the soap tax was repealed, allowing soap to be affordable to more people. Soap advertisements began to appear in newspapers, journals, and on billboards. Soap was promoted not only for cleansing the body, but also for making the complexion clear and the skin soft. Scented soaps were introduced, marketed as being gentler for those with delicate complexions. Many advertisements included racist depictions of African bodies being washed white and alluded to the so-called civilising force of British colonialism. The desire to put a stop to ageing, or at least the visible signs of it, is another common feature of historical recipe books. In ancient Greece, face masks were made from a combination of mud and crocodile dung. Cold cream and other oil-based skin moisturisers have been in use for at least as long. In the 1600s, wealthy Elizabethan women placed slices of raw meat on their faces to reduce wrinkles. In the 1700s, aristocratic French women washed their faces in red wine. One recipe, dating from the 1660s, recommended, quote, A good lump of deer suet. Wash your face overnight with almond milk. Rub your face with the suet after it. If you do not wash your face in almond milk, in the morning take a piece of scarlet cloth and rub your face. It will plump the skin and smooth and keep it from wrinkles. By the late 1800s, new technologies were brought into the fight against ageing. Electrical therapies proved popular, including electrified rollers, daily shock treatments, and a popular patented device called the Overbeck Rejuvenator, which involved attaching electrodes to the body. Anti-wrinkle patches, which were essentially a piece of surgical tape, were marketed to be worn during the night to prevent wrinkles. Recipes for acne, freckles, corns, and warts were also common. In fact, folklore is filled with theories on the causes of warts and the best ways of treating them. Killing a toad was thought to be one cause, as well as contact with animals, particularly cows and chickens. According to folklore, warts could be cured by transference, by natural remedies, and by rituals and prayers. Transference involved passing the wart on to another person or an inanimate object. One option was to fill a bag with as many pebbles as you had warts, then toss the bag over your shoulder. Your warts would be transferred to whoever picked up the bag. Recipes for the treatment of warts were usually particularly disgusting, including pig's blood, spittle, and fish heads. And if those didn't work, you could try rubbing your wart with a potato, which you then buried, 
or washing your hands in moonbeams in an otherwise empty bowl. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage. And we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.